Welcome to this podcast from Christchurch London. For more information and resources, please go to ChristchurchLondon.org. Thank you so much for your welcome. It's always such fun to walk in here. I said to Liam and one or two people this morning, it just feels like coming home. And we so enjoy our friendship with you. So thank you for being our friends. Thank you for your welcome. Thank you um, for having us on your Council of Reference. We are that important, okay? <laughs> you just need to know who is standing right in front of you. Really important. Although, as my boys used to say, just joking you, mummy, just joking you. So I am really only joking you. But we are honoured to be a part of all that you're doing. And I can't tell you how thrilling this is. You know, this stuff going on at the, the new people in Bethnal Green and the steps course. I just, I sit here and I think this is just how church should be, and I absolutely love it. And although one doesn't like to talk about having a second home, until a second home comes along, this'll do. And so I'm perfectly happy to be here. If you have a Bible or some device which passes for it, and you've already been challenged to be honorable with your use of it, would you like to turn to Revelation chapter four? I'm using hard copies, so nobody can accuse me of cheating and looking at my family photographs. So um, Revelation chapter four and five, Stick a finger in there, and um, it's going to be marvelous. We called this talk, John and I, because we work on this together a little bit. Um, the throne, the lion, and the lamb. Absolutely no indication of a witch and a wardrobe, but <laughs> otherwise everything is in place. So will you like to turn to that passage? Now, the book of Revelation, as you know, was written by a very elderly apostle, St. John, he was a follower of Jesus. He had been banished to an island by the Roman authorities, a sort of prison island gulag, if you like, in the Aegean Sea called Patmos. And his letter was written, this letter of Revelation, was written probably in 95, 96 AD. And it was written to answer a specific and very difficult situation in which the early church found itself. Basically, the Christians who read it at the time would have realized what John was doing because they were under the rule of the Roman emperor Domitian, who even given a galaxy of ghastly emperors, came up as one of the worst. He was a ruthless megalomaniac. He was asserting the dominance of Rome. And what was worse for everybody, he was declaring himself divine and insisting that everybody in the Roman empire worship him. Now, this is not good. It put the church under tremendous pressure. Because anybody who refused to do that was immediately at risk of losing their property, their jobs, their freedom, and in many cases, their lives. And so God decided or chose to strengthen and fortify the early church. And how did he choose to do it? To build up his people in their hour of desperate need. He gave his servant a vision. That was it. He just gave him a vision. And we're going to read it together. We're going to romp through, if we may, uh, Revelation, most of chapter 4 and a couple of verses of chapter 5. So, Lord, we commit this to you. We thank you for the amazing scriptures. And we thank you for this wonderful, wonderful book. And I ask, Lord, that you would be as real to us now as we read it as you were to them then. Because your word is just the same. And the circumstances are not dissimilar. And so we ask you to breathe on all of this by your Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Amen. I read this morning a wonderful little quote somewhere, terribly clever, from a Frenchman. And it said, um, the wind of the Spirit is always blowing. It is simply for us to raise our sails. So I invite you to raise your sails as we read this. Chapter 4 and verse 1. After this, said John, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. Verse 2, at once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. A rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. And in the center, around the throne, were four living creatures. And then, of course, there's a list of all the creatures and all the wonderful things that John saw. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. And whenever the living creatures gave glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and he who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fell down before him who sits on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and they say, You are worthy, our Lord and God to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created, and they have their being. And then chapter 5 and verse 5. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain and standing in the center of the throne. Verse 9, and they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation, you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. And they, stroke we, will reign on the earth. It's just amazing. So John sees a glimpse of heaven. He looks, as it were, through a keyhole. It was a vision designed to help the churches of that time in Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamon and Thyatira and Laodicea and all those places. But the revelation wasn't just written in the past and it wasn't just written as a look to the future. It was written to give us heaven's perspective on the present. On this world at whatever time we happen to be living in it. And so chapters 4 and 5 are not just a vision for the first century. They're a vision for us here in London, be it in Stockwell or be it in Blackfriars or be it in Covent Garden or be it in Bethnal Green or anywhere you like to name, any station in between. It's for everybody and it is for now. And it's for the churches in Edinburgh and Dublin and Cardiff and Belfast and the churches in Prague and Cape Town and the churches in China and Uzbekistan and Iran and Zambia and wherever you like to name to help us all to deal with the pressures that we're living under. Because the truth is, the pressures are as great as they ever were. 
They may be different, but they're great. And there is honestly nothing new under the sun. So, what is the vision? The vision is of God being worshipped. That's the vision. And what is the first thing that John sees? The first thing he sees is a throne. Chapter 4 and verse 6. Look at it again. In the vision, God is on the throne. And he's being worshipped. And seven times in these few verses alone, in, and in almost every chapter of the book, the throne is mentioned. If you have it in front of you, chapter 4 and verse 2, I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven. Verse 3, a rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Verse 4, surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones. Verse 5, from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. Verse 6, before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass. On and on and on. In the center, around the throne, says John. Do you get the message? It's a scene of utter, indescribable, awesome majesty. And John sees it, and this is where I find my incredible comfort. John sees the throne as the command center, the nerve center, the cosmic headquarters of the universe. And that's the truth, people. That's where it is. John sees God on the throne at the center of all of creation in absolute, utter control of the universe, then, now, and forevermore. And it is such a strength and such a comfort. And what's more, people, it's the truth. It's the truth. Gene Peterson, who, of course, was the genius that wrote the message, he said, the throne of God is the central revelation of the Bible. And in many ways, of all the many, many glorious doctrines, I find it is one that brings me infinite comfort. At the end of the day, God is on the throne. God is in control. Things have been happening in our world in the last few weeks, which have been a real massive challenge to us personally. And the fact that God is on the throne helps me to wake up in the morning and do the day. And it is a most glorious, glorious truth. And it's the king's throne. It's the throne of God's government. It's the throne of God's authority. King of kings, Lord of lords, seated on the throne. I hope you get the point, the message. So don't get tripped up over all the jewels. I used to think, oh, now what does that mean? What's carnelian? What about emeralds? Should I be wearing pearls? All that stuff. <laughs> There's a quick answer to that. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> all of them. If anyone will give me any of them, I'll wear them. But the precious stones are mentioned simply because they speak of wealth and they speak of magnificence. And they speak, it's in a way, they take over where adjectives and superlatives fail. Now, I have to confess to being quite a master of the adjective and an absolute master of the superlative. And in fact, I was just thinking about it on the train this morning. I once had a rather woebegone boyfriend when I was at University of St. Andrews, long before I ever met John. And he used to say to me, Eleanor, if it weren't for you and those dreadful superlatives, you and I would be looking for a mortgage by now. <laughs> and all I can say is I believe that God is on the throne and that <laughs> sovereignty is absolute. And he spared me from a fate worse than death. <laughs> However, <laughs> thank you. That was a little slow, a little slow. But to be decked out in precious jewels at that, in those days in the ancient world spoke of God being splendid, of God being beautiful, of God being worthy of our attention, of God having every possible resource for all of our problems. 
And in John's vision of heaven, he goes on, and in verse 5, he sees radiating, intense, sparkling light emanating from the throne. Flashes of lightning, he calls it. And then the decibel level, level is raised, again in verse 5, high with rumblings and peals of thunder. And then there's even more light. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. Not just 60-watt bulbs, people. Blazing. And then it's all doubled. Because in verse 6, we see that before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal, and everything was doubled. So the whole floor is a mirror. It's just beyond speech. It's dazzling. It's a scene of utter majesty. And it is a point at which all the adjectives and all the superlatives run out, and we have to fall on our faces and just worship. There's nothing else to do. So what do we understand from this? We understand, I think, two things from the throne, and I love them both. God is the starting point, verses 2 and 3, with all the pressures that these early Christians have. John doesn't start with the pressure point. He doesn't start with talking about the pressure that the church is under. He doesn't start by giving us a thoroughgoing analysis of Roman power. He start by saying how to handle persecution. He doesn't start by talking about truth versus post-truth or news versus fake news. All he does is discuss the worship of God. Revelation 4 and 5 say that if we're going to deal with our particular issues and problems and challenges in London, even today, we have to start with the worship of God, which is, of course, what we do. There are some points which I think I just want to carry on doing this. It's a wonderful thing. We've just been at a conference which was very glorious and where the worship was so, so wonderful that, you know, we use that phrase, I could have died and gone to heaven right then. I almost could. And I thought, God, this side of heaven, there's nothing like it than worshiping with my brothers and sisters, practicing for when we get before the throne. And so we have to start with the worship of God. Who is God? How is he connected to my preparation? What is God saying? How is God leading me in this present situation? The starting point of our thinking is God. So whatever you're anxious or frustrated about, and there are probably many things between us all in this room right now, whatever you're struggling with, slow down, go back to the beginning, and start again. Start with God. Who are you, God? Who and where are you in this situation? What are you trying to do in my life today? Be as brave the men and women that we saw on that video just now. God, all is not quite right, and therefore I'm going to go back and start again. That's what impressed me. What do you want to produce in my life, Lord? How do you want to lead me through this, pro this practical problem that I'm facing even this morning? So not only does a throne indicate that God is a starting point, it also indicates that God is the center point. Everything is centered on the throne. John sees God seated on the throne in the center of all creation, not at the periphery, not sitting helplessly at the edge, not on the sidelines or the touchline of the game, not desperately trying to keep up in abreast of his inbox. No, 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 no. He is at the absolute center of everything. And it is a profound revelation because the universe that we live in, against every possible evidence, is a God-centered universe. And it's completely contrary to all of our instincts. As a, as a result, all of men and women, of course, men and women have become the center of their own universe, and look where it's got them. In our natural selves, we have very self-absorbed lives. 
we tend to demand that we be the center of attention, affection, admiration, respect. We live lives that are centered on us. One only has to hang around children. Mine, me, all about me. As my little granddaughter said to me this week, I have beautiful hair. I mean, she's right, but I suddenly thought, this child is the center of her universe, and that's how we are born. That's where it all begins. She does have beautiful hair, and I keep telling her so. Self-centered world, self-promoting, self-indulgent, self-seeking, self-satisfying, self-aggrandizing, self-everything. And if you don't think so, then you're self-deluded. We used to teach our children, sin is a little word with I in the middle of it. And actually, however simplistic that may be, it is deeply true. But you see, what Jesus did and what the glimpse into heaven does is to spin it all around and turn it on its head. Jesus rescues us from the illusion that life is all about us and centered upon ourselves. He saves us from the self-centered life. He saves us and points us to the liberating truth of the God-centered life. As radical as when the Polish astronomer, was it Copernicus, who suddenly dis discovered that the medieval worldview was completely backwards and that in fact everything revolved around the sun, the sun didn't revolve all around them. It's the same sort of idea. Of course, 350, 400 years ago, I'm a Presbyterian by background, and we were brought up on the Westminster Confession of 1646. And as a little girl, I was taught the beginning of the catechism, where the first question is, what is man's chief end? And the answer is, the chief end of man and woman is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The chief purpose for which you and I were created was to enjoy God, to center our lives on him to revel in his presence, to worship at his throne. And it's through worship that I bring myself into conformity with all those marvelous and fundamental truths. Worship lines me up again. Worship restores my focus. Worship revives my perspective. Worship puts me straight. It's the best place to be. Worship is at the center of it all. We were, just by way of illustration, John and I were recently in Rome, and it was a wonderful experience, but we, we joined in high mass in the um, piazza of St. Peter's outside the Vatican, and it was a glorious event. We took it part as, in as much as we could. And the, the Pope was at the center doing it all, and there were choirs, and there were trumpets, and it was glorious. I mean, it was really, really spine-tinglingly beautiful. Not long before, we had been visiting some little vineyard churches in the Jingu River on the Amazon Basin. And we had been on a boat with an open deck. We had slept on hammocks. We were in the same clothes day and night. We lived on what the river could produce, which was actually piranha. Believe it. And then John and I were paddled in a canoe to a little outpost where there was a vineyard group. I mean, imagine. Look at us. It's ridiculous. It was ridiculous. <laughs> the photographs are ridiculous. They're not to be seen. But do you know, we went through this little compound, no electricity, no roads, nothing. These people have nothing. And there was a little group of people, and they met on a little compound among the chickens, and they had four cows. And we walked up through the compound, and they made us coffee, which for them was a massive sacrifice. And we sat around a tree, and there was no musical instruments. There was, they had nothing. And one woman started to sing in Portuguese, and she started to sing, come. Now is the time to worship. And I thought I would have died. None of the splendor of the Vatican, none of the trumpets, none of the choirs. Just a heart that was centered on God and recognized that they had nothing without him, but with him they were wealthy. 
And it's a glorious truth, and we need constantly to be reminded that the throne is at the center of it all. It's the doctrine of what we call providence or sovereignty. The wonderful C.H. Spurgeon, who, of course, preached in London in the Victorian days, he wrote this, We are not waifs and strays upon the open sea of fate, but we are steered by God's infinite wisdom towards our desired destination. Providence, he said, is a soft pillow for anxious heads. And at this point, you are allowed to drop your eyes and write on your iPad. Providence is a soft pillow for anxious heads. It's the truth. The throne, a little more quickly. The lion, the lion of Judah, verse 5 of chapter 5. Then one of the elders said to me, don't weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He's able to open the scroll and its seven seals. In their context and at their time, the lion represented raw, unassailable power. Awesome, irresistible, overwhelming, inescapable power. It was the most major picture they could come up with of power. So when it calls Jesus the Lion of Judah, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, anyone who knew their Old Testament, of course they would have done, knew that the Jewish Messiah was predicted to come as a conqueror out of the tribe of Judah, which of course is one of the 12 tribes. And so they would immediately have recognized that particular illusion. But not only was Messiah supposed to have come as the Lion of Judah, he was also to come from the line of the King of King David. King David, the greatest military hero in those days of the Old Testament. He defeated the Philistines. He defeated the Moabites. He defeated all the enemies of Jews. He and his son Solomon set up the um, people of Israel in its widest geographical context than it had ever been. Its borders went into present-day Egypt, all of the modern-day of Israel, the West Bank, most of Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, and parts of Iraq. All of it belonged to the kingdom of Israel. So these two images, the Lion of Judah and the Root of David, spoke to the Jews of the victory and the triumph of Christ's kingdom. And when you look in this verse, it says, see the Lion of the tribe of Judah. That's, a, that's an illusion they would understand. The Root of David, everything they would have wanted, has triumphed. Triumphed. And again, if you wanted to underline it or circle it in your Bible, I have underlined the word triumph. In the Greek, it's Nike, and it means overcome. Somebody working for some firm or other that produces athletic equipment made a massive bonus when they put that little tick on the side of the shoes. It speaks for triumph and overcoming. And since Christ has triumphed, so John's argument runs, then his people share in his triumph. Shades of St. Paul, you know that wonderful verse in Corinthians, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ Jesus. And the truth is, however you feel this morning and whatever you're going through, nothing changes the truth of that. Always we are led in triumph. Revelation chapter 5 and verse 10, you've made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. They will triumph. Triumph is our thing. And what does it mean? It means that as followers of Jesus, we need never be defeated by anything, determined by anything, or defined by anything other than our place in Christ.
there may have been terrible things that happened to you in your past. You have may have had an ugly childhood. And in a room this large of this many people, the chances of that being true are great. You may have had unspeakable things happen to you over the past. But through Christ's triumph, you can say, I will not be defeated by this. I will not be determined by this. I will not let this define who I am forever. I'm not going to be defined by the abuse I suffered as a child. We had a woman in our church long since who was gang raped. She was the sweetest, purest, most wonderful young woman in our church. She was gang raped. She was very brave. She told everything. She went to court. She testified. And these men were put into prison, as it should have been. But do you know, she's one of the most wonderful young women I know. Because she has absolutely refused to be defined by it. And God is just at work in her life. We don't have to be. This is New Testament Christianity, people. This is New Testament Christianity, and it promises us that we can overcome whatever. It's not triumphalist. It's not escapist. It's not pretending that things aren't bad. It's recognizing how things are and reminding us that God is at the throne and the lion of the tribe of Judah has triumphed. And it's a merciful, wonderful, wonderful thing. You may be a victim of something. You may currently be out of work and worried sick. You may be financially straightened, as they say. You may have cancer. You may be unmarried and wish that you were married. You may be married and wish that you weren't. Honestly, I'm jo joking you. Not joking you, mummy. You may be childless. You may have all sorts of circumstances that you wish were different. But the truth is, God can deliver us from these things and take us through these things. And you can always say, I will not be defeated by this. I will not let these circumstances determine everything. I will not be defined by my cancer or my singleness or my childlessness or my financial or my poverty or my straightened circumstances, whatever. Don't let them define you because Jesus has conquered and we live in that. The throne, the lion... And finally, the lamb. Do you know, I made the mistake of not looking when I started to speak. Is that all right? Five more minutes, are we okay? Still here? People's, nobody's gone. Brilliant. <laughs> I defy you to leave in the next five minutes. <laughs> I can see everybody. The lamb, the lamb who was slain, chapter 5 and verse 6. Notice something. There is an extraordinarily paradoxical statement contained in this verse. We reach verse 5. One of the elders said, Do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has triumphed. How has he triumphed? Following verse. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne. And verse 9, they sang, and they sang to him, You're worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you've purchased men for God. Twice in those two verses, we read the lamb that was slain. So where the people at verse 5, they would have expected to have a lion ripping into its prey and victory in its jaws. No, 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 no. They moved on and it was a lamb. It was a lamb that was then at the center of the throne. And there we have the great central mystery of the Christian faith. The glorious Messiah, the Davidic king. 
the Lion of Judah, came into this world as a lamb. Earlier, John had written, Behold, and he saw Jesus coming towards him. John the Baptist, I mean, saw Jesus coming towards him. Different John, I knew that. Um, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And again, the people would have recognized what that meant because when they heard of a lamb, they didn't think Easter, fluffy little things, gambling in English meadows. No, no, no. They thought blood, pool of blood, pool of blood, slit throat, sins of the people. And they also remembered that at the Passover, the, the blood of the lamb was daubed on the lintels and the doorposts of their houses and the angel of death passed over. Killed the firstborn of Egypt, took out the enemy, but passed over the people of God. And it's the same thing. John is clearly telling us that the Passover lamb, having shed his blood and applied to our lives, judgment passes over us like the angel of death passed over the people of Israel. And so it is by being slain that the lamb conquers. Isn't it wild? This is the truth, people. This is the doctrine. This is what we believe. This is what we live by. It's just mind-blowing. And it's glorious. And if you don't walk out of this place this morning feeling your heart a little bit lifted, then I'm despairing, frankly. Because I've been just so excited by this. I came early this morning by mistake because I didn't want to be late. And I was far, far too early. So I sat in Blackfriars Station, which is a very edifying place. <laughs> and I read... Revelation 4 and 5, and I said to Philippa, I was just caught up again, and I was late here because I was so excited about this <laughs> blinking stuff, you know? <laughs> it's a wonderful truth, people. And I know I'm not unrealistic, and I'm not triumphalist. Believe me, I'm not. And I know that we're struggling. John and I are struggling at the moment. We've got stuff that we're struggling with. You've got stuff you're struggling with. But there's something bigger than all of it. And it's the throne, because God is on the throne. And it's the Lion of Judah, because he's triumphed. And it's the Lamb that was slain, because by his blood, we have been rescued. We have been rescued. And we can worship at the throne with full hearts, because this people is the truth. And the people said, Amen. 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 It's the truth. Amen. May I invite the band to come? <laughs> Let me... I forgot. I forgot. I'm sorry. I forgot. I'll just talk. We'll talk while you get ready. I'm so sorry. I just think this is so exciting. And I want you to capture it. I want you to catch it. And I want us now to invite the Holy Spirit to come and to bless us and to help us with the reality of each day as well as with the reality of these towering doctrines to which we ascribe. And so over the course of the last day or two and this morning, I felt that there were people in this room. All of you will love this. I'd be surprised if you didn't. However, there are those of you who are um, struggling with anxiety. And I felt the Lord said there are some of you with a medical state of anxiety, which is, of course, a chemical thing and uh, untreatable. There are those of you who are struggling with that. There are those of you who are struggling with emotional anxiety at the moment, which is just as real. Just because something is emotional doesn't mean that it's not real. It's extremely real. And you are struggling. For one or two of you, it was a real effort to get here this morning. 
and God wants to bless you. There's somebody, at least one person here, who's suffering from sleeplessness, which is really becoming very enervating. There is somebody, at least one, who is struggling with their own childlessness. And I felt I had the word fibroids, which has, I think, something to do with that. And there are people here who are struggling with their singleness and with loneliness. These are all real things that affect us day by day. And I felt I would like to suggest that um, if there are anybody in any of those categories, or indeed anything else that you would want to be prayed for this morning, some of you want prayer to, in order for the Holy Spirit to come and persuade you that this is the truth and that you can go out of here rejoicing. And my suggestion would be slightly different from sometimes uh, that while we're singing our final worship song, do just stand where you are. Nobody knows what you're standing for. I had a gynecological condition once exposed during the time that everybody else had athlete's foot. So I had perfect coverage. So please, please understand me. Honestly, I'm serious. Understand me. You can stand up and nobody knows anything about what it is. But stand up before the Lord and the brothers and sisters around you will simply lay their hands on you because there is great power in the laying on of hands. And we will lay hands on you and invite the Holy Spirit to come and to bless you most particularly. We will prefer you if any of these things apply to you. So Holy Spirit, we invite you now to come. We invite your presence. Lord, we lift our sails. We raise our sails right now to the wind of the Holy Spirit. And I invite any of you for whom any of these things might apply, anybody who feels they particularly need to be prayed for at this moment and in the presence of the people to stand and know that at the hands of your brothers and sisters, God is going to bless you more than you would imagine. So why don't you stand right now? Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. And Lord, we prefer these people. We prefer them. These are the people for, at this moment, need a touch of your Holy Spirit most particularly. And we invite you now to come and to bless them. And I want to invite others of you around, as we are worshipping, to look and see where these people are and to lay your hand to what you see God doing. You don't need a big conversation. Just how can I pray for you? And then ask God to do for them what you would like to see done. So bless us, Lord. Bless us. Thank you for listening. For more information or for further podcasts and downloads, please visit ChristChurchLondon.org.